0: Hi, everybody. We're here today talking about uh, shelter-in-place strategy. Oh, wait, sorry. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Green room. All right. <laughs> we got an awesome set of guests. We're going to the back room. Um, we're going to do some quick introductions. Uh, I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research, uh, one of the co-founders and co-hosts here. And I'll pass it on to Vala, and then we'll do some introductions of our guests in
1: reverse order. So, Vala. Hi, everyone. Vala, after co-host, Disrupt TV. This is episode 199. This is 605 interviews in the making. Uh, welcome, looking forward to learning from some of the best and brightest people we know.
0: All right, last but not least, I think we were going that order. I make sure to do it right. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Where are you calling in from? What's going on? And you've got a book title right there. I do,
2: thrilled to be on. Great to see everybody I'm with so many good friends here. Uh, I'm calling in just a few miles south of San Francisco in Northern California. It's a lovely, cool,
0: blue morning. Blue sky morning. Right. That's awesome. Blue Sky Morning, and we got Karen. Karen, you're you're multi-author. We're gonna talk about that later, but Karen, where are you calling in from? And of course, what are you talking about today?
3: So it's great to be here for my debut appearance, and I am talking to you today from Indianapolis, Indiana, where it is a very hot Midwestern summer day, the kind that makes you wanna have a
4: Popsicle. (laughs)
0: All right, Popsicles and popcorns, we're good. All right, Miguel.
4: Yeah, um, I'm calling in today from Austin, Texas, but I'm typically based in New York. Um, I'm here to talk about whatever you wanna talk about, but uh, on that intro, the best and brightest, I think I might be in the wrong green room. (laughs) Nah, (laughs) all right, not at all, not at all. All right, so we're gonna
0: start with the countdown,
4: five, four, three,
0: and we'll start, and we'll see people disappear, and we'll start the show. So thanks everyone for catching the green room, and we're about to go live. So, all right, L, do the honors.
1: All right, hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of a Silicon Valley-based consulting company called Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. Uh, I regularly see him on Yahoo Finance, Fox Business, CNN. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker and one of the uh, top futurists, in my opinion, on Twitter at RWA and G0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV.
0: Hey, thank you very much. I'm here with the man who gives the best introductions in the business, Vala Ashar. He's he's the chief he's the digital chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. More importantly, he's the one that everyone follows on Twitter. CIO, CEO, CMOs. Seek his awesome advice. More importantly, he's on business TV. He's also a keynote speaker himself and an author. But more importantly, it's not about us. It's about our awesome guests, and we've got some very interesting topics and guests this week. Who do we have to kick off, Vala?
1: We have one of our favorite guests coming back. It's a privilege for us to have Miguel Gamino, Executive Vice President Enterprise Partnerships and Head of Global Cities at MasterCard. In his role, Miguel leads MasterCard's global activities with cities and the city possible platform, forming public-private partnerships that drive civic efficiency, inclusivity, equality, and ultimately better quality of life. Now, prior to joining MasterCard, he serves as the Chief Technology Officer of New York City leading the mayor's office of the CTO. He pioneered new civic engagements and innovation platform for New York City and stood as a voice of leadership in the tech policy, ensuring that technology could help New York City become one of the fairest big cities in America, strengthening the city's 8.6 million residents. So we're talking about a CTO of a city, but this could be a country given the population. Miguel's leadership in New York translated to a broad and complex portfolio of public infrastructure, digital, and visionary initiatives, including broadband for all New Yorkers, smart city and IoT programs, and a comprehensive digital strategy that improved government service. Boy, could we use that now around the entire country. Prior to his role in New York, he was the CIO of the city and county of San Francisco. So he only wants to be CIO at places where you got all these people who think they're smarter than him. And he's like tech epicenters (laughs) in the world. No challenge at all. Uh, No challenge. (laughs) And he's the founder of Council of Global City CIOs, so an influencer of influencers within CIOs. You can follow him on Twitter at M-I-G-U-E-L-G-A-M-I-N-O. Welcome back, Miguel. And I say welcome back because we're at episode 199. He was on episode 9, so he's one of the founding members of disrupt tv welcome back wow you guys have been busy since i've been gone what? <laughs> yeah. you're our first valid hall of fame inductee to disrupt tv episode yeah. nine wow, four
0: appearances i mean that's been pretty impressive <laughs> yeah. like four times on here
1: What? Well, nice. well, you know
0: It's a good time to have this conversation about cities, and we're going to talk about smart cities later and work from home and all these other areas, but it's a great time to talk about this because, look, your devotion to public service, it's legendary, right? And now you're on the other side at MasterCard, you understand what the city leaders face, you understand the problems that they have, and as we move into what we're calling a post-pandemic world, What's really going on? What are the big challenges, really? Especially as, you know, when we think about how density right now is kind of an enemy to public health and and things are about to shift in terms of how we buy or how we interact, how we get into cities or how cities are designed, Uh, what do you see? What are your big trends?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, so first of all, thanks for having me, this is awesome to be back. Um, It's great to be with with, uh, the two of you, two of my favorite people in the the business, so to speak. and and the opportunity to kind of to talk with you all and and with the audience is is fantastic. And I I agree with you, that right now, uh, kind of more than ever, this kind of cities topic is is really critical because it's it's in the midst of a transformation, right? Um, and and some would even say existential for some kind of elements of it. I think. You know, density can be referred to or thought of as, as kind of a, an issue or an enemy at the moment. The truth is we're still, and I, I don't mean we, MasterCard, we, society, are still kind of learning what the, what, what the real kind of um, cause and effect is of, of this virus. So um, there's, there's more unknown, I think, right now than known. Um, but, but at the same time, we can't wait around for those things to be discovered to find ways to act and react to what's happening. And so, you know, the, the fact is that people also have sentiment, right? So the one thing is the science of it. And the other is how people feel about, about that, right? And um, so density is challenged on a couple levels. One is potentially the science of it, which is transmission and proximity and, you know, all the things that have, we've been learning at, at a, a breakneck speed over the last several months um but also just people's own kind of fear factor right i think uh there's the reality we have to recognize that people's behavior is part fact and part emotion and uh, the proportions of those things uh vary depending on the severity of the consequences and so i think where before um things like uh that were challenging in cities were were people were willing to overcome them for the benefits of being in these environments? But when that when that consequence increased to public health, then I think a, a lot of those behaviors have been uh, impacted differently. So we are absolutely so public you know, health no was doubt, the breaking
0: point. So public health was the breaking point.
4: I, I think it was. I think it was the, the. It wasn't. It wasn't about things being convenient or inconvenient, nice to have,s or or even. Things like economic access and things; those are super important. But all of a sudden, you shift it to, you know, potentially life and death situations, and um, that—that's a—that's a different risk tolerance uh, calculation, right? Um, and it's particularly with a lot of unknowns. So I think as things get get better understood, I think uh, we'll settle into whatever that new future is. But but I think it's safe to say that I don't think we're just there's not one day where it's going to go away, and we're just going to automatically revert to the way it used to be. I think um, you know some paradigms have shifted, some will shift back, others may have shifted um, permanently.
1: Sure, sure. And the pressure continues, in, independent of the health pandemic. You know, forty years ago there were only three megacities, uh, population of ten million or more: New York, Mexico City. I think Tokyo. I think currently we're around thirty, but it's projected by the end of the decade we could have fifty megacities. So you have this increased density going from 7.7 billion to 10 billion people. And you know. so as this pandemic accelerated the sense of urgency in terms of smart cities, how you can leverage technologies like machine learning or sensors and internet of things, cloud computing, computing at the edge, quantum, a combination of all these technologies, is there from a, from a CTO or CIO perspective, do we see city technologists now really thinking about uh, they need to do things faster given, given again, the, the health pandemic and, and also the, the inequalities that exist because of the health pandemic, the economic uh, and then and climate. So we've got multiple crises that are, that, are, that, are, that are kind of shaping the narrative in terms of what we need to do to leverage technology to improve betterment of society.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, you, you touched on it, Vala, that, um, pre COVID, I used to talk, you know, one of my one of not just mine, but all all of us in this business, one of our key talking points was this urban migration, right? It was a it was fact based that um, the projection was 70% of the world's population in urban centers and in cities uh, by 2050. So not on, uh, not, not only um, the mega cities, but just urbanization in general. Yeah. And now that has been challenged. Um, I think people still seek the prosperity opportunity in cities and the quality of life and, and those sorts of things but some you know some of the calculus has shifted and I think that these um, kind of tier two and I don't mean that in a diminutive way but but this this these cities that offer um, this blend of uh, urbanization and, and opportunity but uh, a little less density or mm-hmm um are able to address kind of the complexities of now this public health concern i think uh are, are going to have a different trajectory and and you know i'm not a doomsday person i'm not gonna say new york is you know terminal but pe- but it is again fact-based that at least right now people have have moved out of some of those cities for a whole host of reasons again i think the consequence dynamic is, is really a driver. A lot of people who might have previously considered it for X, Y, and Z reason, all of a sudden this pushes it over the edge. And so the question will be to your question, Vala, can technology be applied to make these, uh, these dense environments safer and address again, the human factor of that consideration in a way that is sufficient to bring people back or keep people there? I think the answer is probably to some degree, yes, absolutely. Uh, and to another degree, there's these an opportunity for this next wave of cities to capture that moment, frankly, and offer people um, what it is that they're looking for in this moment. I, I think, you know, previous pandemics and other kind of major crises um, have shift, have shifted the landscape literally and figuratively of cities. You know, we have we have. Sewage systems, waste management systems and things directly as a result of a relatively similar scenario, you know, a long time ago. And cities have recovered because they figured out how to use technology at that time to address the concern. And now they and and since then they had become safer and better and healthier and more resilient and everything else. Right. I think this is another one of those moments that will push us forward it won't necessarily hold us back and that's again I'm an optimist I'm the glass half full and filling kind of guy uh but I but I also really believe that um um to be based in fact and so you know that's the last point to your question also Vala is I've had conversations in my current role with City Possible we have uh over 160 cities that are members of our of our club if you will of our community and so you can imagine i'm i my team our collectively our company has in in many respects become an extension of city hall you know (laughs) a hundred times over and so we're we're in there with them you know helping fight this battle and so i've been in a lot of those conversations with people who now have my former roles right sure, sure and And it's not a matter of, oh, we need to invent something new. Sometimes there's a little bit of that. But a big, big chunk of it, guys, is the stuff we have already wanted to digitize. Yeah. Right. And previously it was driven by convenience, efficiency, you know, user experience, things that were important, but not existential. Right. And now all of a sudden it's public health and it's life and death. And now, yeah. digital for the purpose of going touchless, completely right. different calculus right. in terms of our right. ROI, right? right? Yeah, so, yeah, from nice to have to a necessity. Yeah. So that digital conversation has morphed a little bit into a touchless conversation, um, but has also accelerated into we've yeah. got to have it now. Tied back to everything I just described in answering your question about how technology can. Um, You know, influence the flow of people in in that urban migration, right? If they get it right and they get it right quickly and give people comfort that those urban dense settings can still be safe, then I think that will change the trajectory
0: you know it's a great point right i mean some of the work you guys have been doing in city possible it's a private public partnership i think people should uh take a look at that i mean some great things right i mean you guys are trying to figure out how to make you know mass transit digitize you're, you're trying to figure out how to solve some of the bigger challenges you know with cities in terms of you know climate change and, and where, where they're headed in terms of you know emissions uh so it seems like it's a lot of data. You guys are using a lot of data to get to these things, um, and it sounds like the, you know there's some opportunities in that data. Where is it underutilized, right? Where can governments take that data and prioritize and and help use that to guide response to programs?
4: So we we launched something actually pre-COVID at the end of last year, fall, last fall, called City Insights, which is effectively just a platform, a framework for the use of data. Um, and, and to direct, you know, to form insights that influence policy and investment and, and you know, societal decisions um, and had no idea that the pandemic was coming uh, when we did that. But we knew at that time it was useful to steering these these really important policy considerations and, and leadership points. Um, then fast forward to COVID and the calls came in fast and furious and and much more pointed, right? We want to understand what is going to happen to our economy if we take what at that point was, you know, potentially inevitable step of shutting things down. What's what is the economic consequence of that? And how do we understand where that consequence is greater and lesser? And so that even on the recovery, on the other end of this, we could, we the government, them could understand how to target recovery steps. So it was, it was, truthfully, it was very, um, it was very comforting to me that I heard some governments thinking, you know, three clicks ahead um, and asking someone like us to feed into that thinking in a fact-based way. Uh, but I will also give the company and our team a lot of credit. The reason those conversations happened that way that quickly was we had already invested in creating the community and the trust base, the relationship with the cities. I I joke, I tell people they didn't look us up on the Internet and call a (laughs) 1-800 number, right? And say, hey, who at MasterCard can I talk to to help me with X, Y and Z? Yeah, they had me on on, you know, text kind of thing. Right. And people from my team. So so that really changed the arc of engagement right that we could get to the point they knew the questions they could ask they they knew that they could ask even even broader questions and that we were in a position to us to respond authentically and we did that in a really meaningful way with with new york city in particular um we helped them really understand the the tax revenue impact of all of this because by the way covid didn't change the fact that they were going into their Leg- like their required budget process yeah. and timeline. So there was no pause button for that, right? Let's wait and see how this all shakes out and then make some really important decisions. They, they, it was a critical moment. They needed to understand what sure. was coming at them even before they had made the decisions that were going to be the, the cause to the effect, if that makes sense.
1: It does. It does make sense. And when I knew you when you were CIO in San Francisco and then CTO in New York, you you really uh, had a passion serving small businesses, small, medium sized businesses. They were an important stakeholder for you. And you knew that they were the fuel that drove the economic engine for these cities. So I know you brought that passion with you to MasterCard. So what's MasterCard doing now to help this hard hitting space, small businesses? How are you helping small businesses get through this this seismic event that we're all experiencing?
4: Yeah. So we, um, so listen, small business has been an important thing for the company. Um, And as you said, even in my personal kind of roles previously, uh, for a long time, predating all of this. And that that just became even more important now. And our CEO has been very public in saying, you know, uh, protecting and saving and supporting small business is absolutely critical to the, the economy, right? Not just our businesses, but just the the, the, you know, the economy at large, um, they're a huge employer. Um, and the truth is that they are, you know, the context in many respects to, to, you know, life, right, like, you yeah. everyone has their favorite coffee shop and their favorite this and that, and that is what makes it um, woven together in a special way. And so I think, you know, right now, they face disproportionately, um, a lot of risk. And so we Um, we made a commitment recently, uh, for, to basically dedicate $250 million worth of resources over the course of five years to support small businesses. And that's a combination of, of technology and service and support and kind of all, you know, a a really well-rounded approach. It's not just cut a check and, you know, good luck, right. It's a, it's a more holistic view of how we can help them, um, uh, and we actually added so so recently we, you know, we previously, I should say, had a commitment to um, get a, a 500 million people into the digital economy. We recently doubled down on that and now declared that a, we will help a billion people um, enter the, the formal economy and added um, a bit, small business to that to that commitment also. So. Awesome. From from many angles, um, the company is has been there and is now just kind of leaning in harder uh, because this is about again, you know, protecting the economy, but in many respects, protecting you know our our way of life. You know, I think it's a, it's a bigger picture for sure.
0: Congratulations. No, this is great. No, thank you so much. I know you guys have been you know, working on a lot of great initiatives. We are so out of time. Uh, we could be talking to you for a whole hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. is that 20 so minute feels like two minutes. <laughs> last I don't know time what happened. On, it just...
4: Last time I was on, we challenged Elon to Wi-Fi on the moon. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah, yeah, yeah. We need some kind of bold, you know, you know bold, <laughs> uh, challenge to someone, you know. I think as the fifth or sixth richest man in the world. I think he could do that. He could do that. Yeah, I think yeah. might, He's got the
0: satellite network. Something's going on exactly, there. Exactly. We are here with Miguel Gaminio, EVP Enterprise Partnerships and head of global cities at MasterCard. You can follow him on Twitter at M-I-G-U-E-L-G-A-M-I-N-O. It's his fourth appearance and he was on episode number nine. So, hey, thanks for being here. We're going to catch up later. And if you want to join us later in the green room when we get off, please feel free. Uh, but hey, thanks so much for being on the show.
4: Great. Thanks. Guys. Thank you so much,
1: Leo. Awesome. What a what a, what a champion. Uh, wherever he goes, things transform. Like wherever, whatever, whatever he touches. Uh, and speaking of someone who's transforming businesses by guiding CEOs and CXOs, our next guest is Karen Mangia, Vice President of Customer and Market Insights at Salesforce, a company that I'm familiar with, where she engages current and future customers around the world to discover new ways of creating success and growth together. Karen is an internationally recognized thought leader whose TEDx appearances, keynote blogs, and hands-on workshops reach hundreds of thousands of business leaders globally each year. I'm a benefactor as, as I sit in the audience and learn from her. Karen is the author of Success With Less. Her next book, Making Work, Making Work From Home Work For You will be released next month in August. We're gonna, it's the fastest book to market ever. We're gonna learn about that. Also, Karen also has another book, uh, Listen Up, How to Tune In to Customers, Tune Down the Noise and Tame the Composition is also coming out this year in October. So two books in 2020. Uh, Just for those of you who, uh, like myself, fight imposter syndrome, Karen is someone who's gonna make that even worse. Uh, formerly responsible for insight and innovation at Cisco Systems, Karen led a global team responsible for customer satisfaction, experience, diversity in business practices, and global offset and counter trade. Karen and I have co-authored 15 ZDNet articles since March of this year. Fifteen. And the focus has been the focus has been on future of work and how you can. Really achieve optimal performance while going through this incredible period that we're going through. Some of the most popular posts on ZDNet have been Karen's contribution to this effort. She's a fantastic follow on Twitter at Karen Mangia, K-A-R-E-N-M-A-N-G-I-A. Welcome, Karen, to Disrupt TV.
3: Thanks so much. It's exciting to be here and I feel like, you know, 15 blogs into the written word together, we finally get to talk live. I mean, we've ex- we've extended into a new medium with our thought leadership together.
1: Karen, you've helped me get another 10,000 followers on Twitter, so thanks for uh, all that you do, and let's keep writing.
3: Half a million is it within sight, Vala.
1: It
0: <laughs> He's getting there. He's getting there. We'll be talking about Vala and like all these uh, social channels yeah. everywhere. <laughs> no, we already are. But hey, look. How, how can people set themselves up, right? You've got this awesome book, right? You wrote it. It's super, I mean, you got it out super quickly. We'll talk about that later. But, but I think the essence of the book really is we're working from home. It's not going away, right? And how do we set ourselves up for this long-term success where we can actually not just work from home, but work from anywhere?
3: Well, I think that success is not a location. And the way that this whole situation got started, most people did not choose to work from home right it was something that was forced upon us and i've observed that there's been three phases of that experience and i think the first one was adrenaline i mean everybody was like we are in this together we will conquer this thing we will do whatever it takes to keep our customers keep business going phase two the honeymoon is over It's like (laughs) that. Why
0: I'm
3: tired, (laughs) right? The kids are in detention from homeschool until 2023. The dog will not stop barking, and if anyone else asks for dinner while you're on a conference call, you're going to lose it, right? I think we're in phase three now, which is people are asking how long is this going to last. So, to me, right now, setting yourself up for longer-term success on work from anywhere starts with asking what's working and what's not working for you right now, right? At first it might've been okay to work in your uncomfortable dining room chair or have the glitchy video that cuts in and out. And now people around you are operating their game. You know, your home office is your new context and is what's being reflected from there, putting you at your best. And I think putting you in a position to show up and collaborate and be at your best and help your teams and people around you do the same.
1: You know, so you and I had a casual conversation three months ago where you said, "I'm a member of the Salesforce Work From Home Council," and I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> I didn't know what it was, and you explained it to me, and you're like, "We're trying to identify how 52,000 employees at our company can effectively um, can be effective and have a peace of mind and, and be able to deal with anxiety and stress and and help contribute to society." and I was fascinated so i said you know we should write about that now fast forward 15 articles again some of my most popular articles have been due to your thought leadership and then at the same time two months ago you pitched to your publisher an idea about a book and you pitch it two months ago and it's going and it's going out in, in, in next month so from pitch to book on shelves is 60 days, which I don't know. To me, that's like record. I, uh, I've never heard I've of that never before.
0: heard of this. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I, I I love your publisher. I know Jesse. Like, I have never seen anything go from pitch to hard book in two months. Two I mean, months. I, what was I the know. pitch? What was the pitch?
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Now,
1: yeah. my, my question is, like, you are a poster, uh, you know, a, 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 a poster of someone who is disciplined, is optimistic, doesn't care about a pandemic, I mean, you care, but it doesn't stop you. You're a force of optimism and outcome and positivity. So my question to you is, where does that come from? Is it your parents? Is it like, were you a super athlete, like played professionals? (laughs) Where where does this come from?
3: I would love to tell you that I would be a great professional athlete, and it's difficult to tell on video. But I'm not that tall, and I don't think I'm (laughs) that threatening, even with the Sicilian last name in the background. Okay. What really motivates me is being a student of success. I, you know, we talk about lifelong learning, and the topic that interests me most is Hmm. how to be successful and how to find the best in others and help them do the same. And when you talked about success with last night speak about it and, you know, tour and coach people on that topic, something that came to me is how much people want to feel that they're not alone, mm-hmm. that that they're not the only person struggling with something. And what motivated me so much when you invited, you know, the conversation about working from home is that I hear people talking about at a personal level and at a professional and organizational level, wanting to reinvent and wanting to, you know, get re-inspired or get more resourceful. And to me, this is a moment of opportunity to take past experiences and, and past relationships and turn them into present value for the purpose of saying to people, you're not the only one who's struggling trying to figure out how to manage a team remotely. You're not the only one struggling to figure out how to keep your business alive or your job while you're teaching your kids. And it's that I want to share some experiences that I've had since I gave my first interview about working from home in 2002, believe it or not. And then to feature some other people who are experts as well to just say there is a path forward even in isolation. And yeah. the beginning of that is connection. I mean, one of the things that happened with the blogs and creating this opportunity is you shared your platform and invited me to join you. And that's the idea behind the working from home book. You know, I'm sharing some expertise that hopefully serves people as you look forward and say, how do I get resourceful? You know, how do I find new energy and new ideas now that we know that this is here to stay? I'm
1: going to share your secret sauce for success uh, in 10 seconds. You are successful because you're the, one of the most generous givers that I know. You give without expecting a get, get and you keep giving and giving and giving. I've, which, I've witnessed this since I've known you. So uh, I'm telling you, uh, being a giver is, uh, is super important, and, uh, and you're, you're, you're exceptional at giving. I see it all the time. Sorry, that was more than 10 seconds. Ray, go ahead. <laughs>
0: No, it's true. I mean, yeah, who meets someone up at twelve in the morning at an airport for uh, to go get food?
1: <laughs> <laughs> she gives her time all the time to everyone. Unbelievably generous person. Yeah, Unbelievable. No, unbelievably
0: generous. Hey, you know what? I was looking at the I, when I was reading the book and you know was doing the review. There's a chapter that I think everybody should start with. I think it's like rituals, routines, and boundaries. If that's the one, mm-hmm. and and you had some some work at home. Action plan that you tell people to think about. And I think it's really important because you know you're used to getting to the, you know, popping in, doing the commute, showing up at the office, saying hello, right? And suddenly you're like, holy crap, I'm home. <laughs> what do we do now? Right. And and there's something to it. And I, I think a lot of people are struggling with that. Can you share a little bit more about that?
3: Your laptop is now your pantry. What I'm observing with people is that every time you go by your pantry right now because you're home more, those chips, those donuts last nights carry out leftovers that are judging you from the refrigerator or calling your name. And every time you walk by, you want a snack. Think your laptop and your job is like that too, right? You keep going by work because it's everywhere and you take these little snackable bites. I'll just do one more email, just one more tweet, just one more conversation. And slowly what happens is you're grazing on work all the time. And when I think about rituals, routines and boundaries, I mean, you may not have loved your commute to work, whether you were flying all the time or sitting in traffic or taking public transportation. The reality though, is that commute signaled to you, I'm going to work and getting into a certain mode. And then I'm leaving work behind. And the reality is work is an invited guest and it's only going to show up where you invite it. And if you don't have routines, rituals, and boundaries that say, hey, my go to work routine now that I'm at home, so I'm in the zone mentally fresh and ready, looks like I make the coffee, I put on real clothes, I get in front of my laptop that's in a dedicated space, and then I go to work. And at the end, what's your transition ritual? How do you leave? Do you shut the door? Do you walk around the block with your family? Do you listen to a song? Do you read a chapter from a book? Whatever that looks like for you. You know, Many people would leave the office, right, to go pick up your kids from daycare, or you would call your mom on the phone on your commute, and it would tell your brain, we're done working, right? We're going to turn it off for a little bit, and we're going to change the channel. And I think great leaders right now are building in some ways to both model that for themselves, but also teach their teams and give them permission to do that also. Because the reality is we have rituals and routines now. They just might not be purposeful. So I think it's about pausing to think what might serve you. And and it almost strikes me when I look at, I think how all of us have been trying to live is, it's like, if you're looking at this spinning fan, I mean, imagine it right now, there's a fan spinning as fast as possible in front of you. And imagine I asked you to like take this post-it note and put it through the slats in that fan. And what's the easiest way to accomplish that task? It's to slow down the fan. Right. (laughs) uh, Exactly. See the exercise that we're all in right now without routines, rituals, and boundaries, is we're putting our energy into making the fan spin faster instead of turning it up and saying, what's the most important thing that needs to go into that time slot right now?
0: Hey, Karen, Vala, oh, I'm going to have to return that book, great. Work From Home, Pants Optional. I guess that book has got to go out the door. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Now you wonder why your publisher is late to respond to you. Uh, okay, everyone listen, everyone, listen up. Listen up. This is the most important question I'm going to ask. Listen up. No. So let's talk about listen up. <laughs> your, uh, your next book that's going to come out in, uh, uh, later in the year, I think it's going to come out in October, Yep. now again you're, you serve on several boards so you're a board of directors several institutions you host uh significant cxo discussions at salesforce where you moderate and speak to some of the best and you know trailblazers and uh, customers and partners that we have what is listen up about it's you know the title is how to tune into customer uh, turn down the noise and tame the competition can you give us the essence of, of your thesis in terms of the importance of listening So you can uh, hopefully anticipate the needs of your stakeholders and proactively deliver to it?
3: I think that the three most powerful words in leadership are, I hear you. I mean, think about it, how it feels to truly be heard. And I was Mm. recalling the very first sales call I ever had a chance to do. I got into sales quite accidentally. And I was assigned to the 100 worst performing, unbeknownst to me, customers in my branch. It was called the STAR module. that's some glamorous?
0: Did you I just join? Yeah. Were you like the last person on the totem pole? <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. They were, in the environment. They were like, did you kind of watch these customers? I came to realize I think STAR actually stood for like small, troubled, and risky. But nevertheless, <laughs> I go into my first sales call mostly because the customer is willing to see me, which is a marked difference over the 99 others that I'm supposed to be visiting with. And I go in to do my first sales pitch. It is like a rickety conference room chair. Someone is smoking in the corner. The coffee is the thickness of varnish and tastes like something from a truck stop, okay? I pull a manila folder out of my, you know, not so expensive briefcase. I take out printed copies of a proposal I cleverly downloaded from the intranet. I hand it out to everyone in the room and then I read it to them. Like I read it to them, okay? Out loud, I made the sale. How is that possible? Do you know why? The only part of that template you could customize was the customer's objectives and how your solution would solve for them. And because I had never met with customers before, I asked a lot of questions and I did my research and everything they said to me was revelatory and it was like I was hearing it for the first time. So even though my pitch was terrible, they felt heard. And you know what? That beginner's mind is something that people Mm. with experience Struggle with. And that's the heart of the book, which is this how do you forget everything you know, no matter how many times a customer said it to you, no matter how senior you are, and truly show up and hear your customers without ego in the conversation or experience clouding your judgment because you just know what they're going to say? How do you have the discipline oh. to make each conversation new? And then how do you ask better questions? So, a couple of teasers. We've got the genius question in the book, the catalyst questions in the book. So, some new ways to have old conversations and really begin again, and empower every person in your team and in your company to come together and hear from your customers as well.
1: Very you know, cool. Very
0: the, cool. In the book, you talk about something that's really important, and and really talks about talent and, and and empowering some of that talent uh, in, in customer success. And I think was it, the third or the fourth item that was in there was find miracle workers. And, mm-hmm. and I thought that was very important because... Uh, I, I wouldn't say people underestimate or underappreciate the good teams and good people. I think they just sometimes forget that they have them, right? When things are working, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and to get someone and to you know bring someone into the team to do that, those miracle workers are pretty powerful. Talk about the miracle workers and, and what that mm-hmm. means, uh, and and share with that you know what how's that important. So
3: well, I think right now it feels like for lots of us and lots of people watching that our customers need miracles and they're hoping that we're going to be their miracle makers. And everybody has that inner genius and the people who can solve some of the biggest problems that your customers face sometimes are unlikely people. They don't Mm -hmm. always see customers every day or the change they're seeing is such a small step, but it really makes a big change for that customer. And so when I think about miracle workers and tapping into your inner genius and everybody has it, I think it's about a couple of things. First of all, It's about having an organizational culture that says great ideas can come from anyone, anywhere, at any time. Uh And I think it also comes from making an environment where those ideas can come forward. And I'll use an example. Vala was talking about inviting me to do that blog. Well, because he extended his platform in that invitation, we started doing it. That created the opportunity to write the working from home book us was my miracle worker. Right. And by the way, he's in the book as well. So be sure to stay tuned for what that looks like. But, you know, he oh. did. that. So then I've got another coworker who said, Hey, I'd really like to learn how to start some advisory boards. I've never done that before. Could you help me? And I thought, I know how to do that. It, and I talked about that and listen up as well. Great advisory boards and hearing from customers. So now I'm, I'm extending it that direction. And so what, what feels normal to you might be really miraculous to someone else. And that could be someone who's looking for a job right now. That could be someone who's trying to figure out how to get their office set up, right? To look better and you're both expert at it. But we all have something that we can give that feels yeah. really miraculous to the person on the
1: receiving end. It's so true I, It's so yeah. true. And, and you're a miracle worker and thank you for your kind words. It's hard to have you on one show while you have two new books coming. So please come back. When the books are out, we'd
0: love to hear from you. We have to definitely bring her back.
1: (laughs) Karen Mangia, Vice President Customer and
0: Market Insights at Salesforce. Check her out on Twitter. Some great stuff. K-A-R-E-N-M-A-N-G-I-A. Two new books. Check them out. Working from Home. It's coming out soon. Listen up. Definitely check it out. Very interesting forward. I'll let her share that with us the next time. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show and hope to see you in the green room afterwards. Thank you. So awesome.
1: you're, you're awesome. Thank you so much. She's, uh, Ray, it's just incredible. One of the smartest people I know and just gives, she's a giver. So, um, speaking of giving, speaking of smart, speaking of someone both Ray and I admire, absolutely. <laughs> we have Dr. Jonathan Reinkertal, who's the CEO of Human Future, a global business and technology education advisory and investment firm. Jonathan uh, is a former chief information officer for the city of Palo Alto and a multiple award-winning technology leader whose 30-year career has spanned both private and public sectors. Jonathan was named one of the top 100 CIOs in the world and named the top influential CIO in the U.S. He's also recognized as a global thought leader on a number of emerging uh, trends including urban innovation and blockchain technologies. Jonathan was recognized one of the 25 doers, dreamers, and drivers in government in America He also won Best CIO in Silicon Valley Award, and National IT Leadership Prize. His innovative work in government has also been recognized by the White House. Jonathan is an adjunct professor at several universities, including UC Berkeley and University of San Francisco. He co-hosts a popular podcast, Drinking Wine, Talking Tech. His uh, current book, you see the logo you see behind, Smart Cities for Dummies is available in bookstores and online right now. He's a great follow on Twitter, at. Reichenthal, R-E-I-C-H-E-N-T-A-L. Welcome, Jonathan. Welcome back, Jonathan, to uh, Disrupt TV.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to see both of you. I can't believe it's 199 episodes. Congratulations.
1: You are on opposite 32. So again, an early, when I think about Miguel and yourself, you helped launch Disrupt TV. We need, we really needed like really super smart technologists and so early on we had a concerted effort of bringing like big brains on the show and you were on opposite 32. So thank you so much.
0: No, and, and these are all BT, Business Transformation 150 winners like both of yeah, you. Yeah. But before we do that, I kind of want to embarrass Jonathan just a little bit. If you are trying to learn technology and you haven't seen has lynda.com courses. They're awesome, right? Intro to quantum cryptography. Like, I didn't know you're an expert in that. Intro to digital twins, amazing, right? Oh, Foundations yeah. of the 4th Industrial Revolution. I mean, there's a like great stuff sitting on this. Smart cities solving urban problems using tech, open data, unleashing hidden values. Every class is amazing. And if you don't get a chance, definitely check it out uh, before we jump into this interview. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. Hearing that from you guys is, is very special. Thank you. Oh no, it's great. I mean, I I told my I told my kids, you gotta get check this out if you want to learn something like that's different than what you're doing now, and it's much more useful than what you're learning in school. Which I don't think I really said that, but uh, anyways, (laughs) I shouldn't tell them that. But hey, you know your your book on smart cities for dummies. I mean, this is more important than ever. Um, what inspired you to write this? Because there was no pandemic when you did this. There was no burning platform. Right, right, I mean, smart right. cities were kind of like, oh, cool, we're going to go to attend this conference. Lots of things are happening, right? I'm not really well aware of it. And now we need those more than ever. So talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, isn't it the best title ever? Like smart cities. <laughs> means, I, I think it's just a great title. <laughs> uh, I'm very, uh, very privileged to have been asked to write it. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why I really uh, was delighted to have that opportunity is I wanted to get down on paper, you know, uh, 10 years of experience and not only at the city of Palo Alto, but also traveling around the world, meeting with yeah. city leaders and mayors and city managers to be able to help them. Uh, I think Miguel set this up really well. Uh, cities are so important. Uh, my, my phrase is our, our future belongs to cities. Uh, you know, we will solve climate change inside cities. Uh, Cities generate 70% of uh, GDP. Um, Cities are the greatest human invention. They've brought the most amount of people out of poverty than anything else. Um, So I wanted to tell that story. You know, when I sat down to write it, (laughs) I started in about September, October of last year. And, you know, the publisher, Wiley, they said, you have to write you know, I think uh, 350 pages or something. And I, I sit down in front of my computer. I'm like, how the heck am I going to write 100 and, uh, 350 pages about cities? And and then I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I said, oh, this is a, this is a huge topic. And I'm at, you know, page 400 now. And and I'm like, okay, I've, I've written enough, I think. So it's a huge, important topic. Wow. And I wrote the book for the whole family. I, I wrote it for kids. Uh, I wrote it for businesses, vendors. Uh, so uh, it, it's the story of our future.
1: So you're sitting down for, I'm guessing, six, seven months, and you produce 400 pages on the topic of smart cities. What did you learn in that process? Uh, and, and because you know, lots of things happen during that time period. And, and again, you started not thinking you can write 100 pages, and you end up with 450. So what did you learn? <laughs> what, did you, what did you learn in the process?
2: <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, I learned that writing a book is hard. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. All of us, (laughs) I think many of us have written a book here and, and it's, it's writing is hard and, and to, to write that many words and, and to not only write a book, but write a good book. You want, you want it to be meaningful, insightful. You want people to get real value from it. So I think, I think it was a, it was a hard activity, like, like a, like a very quick marathon. It was a sprint Mm -hmm. in a marathon, if you like, um, I also uh, learned about things that uh, I, I didn't think I was going to discover. For example, uh, the complexity of water systems and the importance of uh, <laughs> water systems in cities, right? Uh, one of my most fun uh, parts of the book for me to learn about and write was the history of uh, street lighting. Like, like I, I didn't yeah. know that would be so interesting. Um, you know, there used to be, in, in street lighting goes back, you know, thousands of years uh, in, in very, very basic uh, in its basic form. And at one point, there were uh, people, if you entered a town, if you were a stranger who entered a town and you needed to go from, I don't know, that, that bar back to your uh, you know, place where you're staying, a person would actually take you and they would hold a oil candle, sorry, an oil lamp yeah, and, and walk with you the whole way to your wow. destination. Um, and then it was really, it was really in France um, uh, over the last h- few hundred years that, the, you know, they pioneered uh, street lighting, and that's why the city became known as Paris,
0: the uh, the city of lights.
1: City of lights, that's amazing. Having that's having, amazing. having lived in
0: Baltimore, I'm gonna think of Baltimore some street cred. They, they, <laughs> they were first 1816 with Baltimore, then 1820 with Paris, if I remember. So.
1: I I, I, now, I now see world <laughs> Econ- I now see World Economic Forum videos of smart lighting, where you know the city lights turn on only when you d- d- detect motion. Uh, so it's just so much advancements from. Somebody, you know, hosting you as a light, you know, uh, 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 light uh, host. guide, I like guide, that, light guide to now like smart lights that are motion sensing. It's amazing. It's it is
0: pretty cool, and you know speaking about that smart infrastructure and smart technologies, I mean you pioneered a lot of these and tested a lot of these in the city of Palo Alto. Um, what can you share about some of those interesting things? I mean, I know you told me some things I'm not sure if they're all public, right, but there are some things around traffic and some things about sure. lighting and some things about energy efficiency and I thought they were pretty interesting so
2: yeah I'd love to share a couple of examples and and you know i I worked at the city of Palo Alto for seven years on the button by the way i joined on December 13th, 2011, left on December 13th, 2018. And, um, and so now I've left and I, you know, I'm writing, of course, teaching and, and I have my own little business. So I can, I could talk about all the things I couldn't talk about before. Um, but, you know, when, when I was uh, wrapping up my work at the city, um, I, the city manager asked that, you know, we put together a portfolio of all our achievements and it's it, you often, you know, as even Karen was talking about, you're so sort of. We're so in a rush all the time, looking forward all the time. We don't pause and look back and reflect as much as we should. And my team put this together. And we, In my tenure, we developed uh, 275 projects uh, successfully deployed wow. at the city of Palo Alto. Wow. Um, I created this project management machine, as I like to call it, uh, churning out lots, lots of, of value. A couple of things I'm very proud of uh, that we did was, uh, we were very much leaders in open government, making available data, making lots of ways for community, the community to be able to have their voice heard and to engage in activities. Um, we were one of the leading cities at the time for uh, putting together an open data portal so people could uh, download data, they could build solutions, they could figure out um, information to bring for better decision-making. The other one was digi- digitalization. We, we moved uh, 60 city services uh, online, basically, um, to be on either through... Um, you know, you through a web browser on your computer or through a, increasingly on an app. And you could do things like we had a, we had a, a public safety app. We had an emergency uh, app for earthquake, something like that. We had a, uh, something that's really cool is uh, Palo Alto is famous for having you know, five libraries for a small community. Well, we built a sixth one entirely virtual library wow. um, yeah. and so you can you can borrow books you can you can do the things you can do in the physical library in the virtual library i guess it's probably really popular right now yeah <laughs> um, but, <laughs> and the other part about it is it's in, in, in a way our library is now global because it's it's virtual For anyone sure. uh, anyone can use it uh, a couple of other kind of bigger projects that i think were uh, quite game-changing and, and were good uh, influence in other cities were our was our tri city activity for nine one one. So rather than uh, one city building all the infrastructure for nine one one or upgrading it, uh, we collaborated with uh, Mountain View and and uh, Los Altos to uh, create a uh, a tri city environment. We shared the cost. Uh, we were able to share best practices. Uh, if we were chasing a bad person, you know, we had, we could transition the chase from our city to their city, uh, for example. <laughs> Um, and then, lastly, uh, you mentioned it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Ray. Is um, uh, the work we did on the traffic signaling system? So during my time there, we moved from an analog system, basically, you know, uh, a, 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 just electricity on and off or very basic uh, switches, to completely digital. Um, and, you know, that could allow, for example, the ability to control the lights from a smartphone, although I never did that. And we don't do that. <laughs> uh, when I when I would be out at a restaurant, someone would say, Jonathan, can you make that light you know, on the corner where I live uh, be longer on green or something? Uh, I said, no, no, I, 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 I won't do that. Um, but one of the uh, cutting edge things is think about this for a second. You are. It's late at night. It's, I don't know, it's 1 a.m. And maybe you've got a baby in the house and you need some medicine or you need some milk or something. So you jump in the car, go to a 24 hour store and you, and, and let's say you catch the light at the wrong time. So yeah. you are now sitting in front of red lights all yeah. the way to your store when there's nobody on the road. It's empty. Unbelievable. unbelievable. We need dynamic, right. We need dynamic traffic signaling systems. And you know, that's what we built in Palo Alto. Um, we we started to pilot it on a number of streets and uh, increasing. You know, you don't want to do it to the whole city all at once because sure, that can be problematic. Sure, sure. So we did it in phases, and by the time I was leaving, it was was growing. So now the lights can Null change. and Embarcadero.
0: No, and Embarcadero. Anyways.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. pitch for that. Yeah. 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 Everyone's everyone's amazed why Dr. Raikin's commute was the shortest. You know, green, 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 green. No, no, but uh, but it's amazing to hear from you because, you know, you said seven years you were there. So you did 40 projects a year, seven times 40, 280 projects. I mean, 40 projects a year. So as, as a citizen, you know, people that are listening to you, I mean, it's it's astonishing to do 40 projects a year. So, so what advice do you have for people who want to engage uh in their community to 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 make changes happen how did these folks how did these projects come to you were they citizens requesting or did you have an innovation lab or was it a hybrid model of you know inventing in in in-house while also being responsive to the community how did you it's it's magic what you did well
2: well thank you for that and and i was also impressed by that number when i left (laughs) (laughs) again you're so you're so in the moment that one doesn't you know (laughs) consider it I, i i'd advise you know, tech leaders and other leaders to reflect with their teams, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, celebrate the things you do well. Don't, don't uh, wait too long. Um, there are lots of ways, by the way, all the things you said Vala about how you, how we got ideas and how we did things are all correct. We, we got them from the community. We often got them from the city manager. Uh, we, we, they were driven of course by policy, uh, often regulatory things that were outside our control. That's part of running a city. Um, And then we did have an innovation lab. Yes, uh, I I put a lot of emphasis on that. And we created a living lab uh, in the front of City Hall. And we we had everything from Wi-Fi experiments to, um, uh, we we had a a, a bench actually. And 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 there was a solar panel on the side of the bench that you could plug in and charge your phone.
0: And uh, I I, I, remember seeing this, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I did visit the lab. (laughs) That's right, yeah. I
2: I think it gave you a tour also over data center. gave you a tour of that, yeah. That was tremendous. Um, So there are lots of ways for people to be Mm -hmm. engaged in their community. I always try to, people think of government as sort of a black box. And I agree, before I worked for the city, I didn't know how to engage either. And and it was a big surprise to me when I moved in, uh, the things you could do. So the first thing I always share with people is, When you think of federal government, state or county, these are are big governments. These are huge organizations. You can't even find the right person. You don't know where the entry point is. But cities, cities are really close to their people. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, 35 million people in Tokyo or 65,000 people in Palo Alto. um, That is where the rubber hits the road, to use an expression. Uh, So that means you can pick up the phone and call the city manager you can go into city hall and ask to speak to the person who makes the decision. Wow. So I, I yeah, I, 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 and people are astounded by this. I, yeah, say, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's pretty intimate. It's pretty intimate. It, it is intimate. I love that word. That's perfect. Don't be afraid and don't be frustrated. You know, we, we, we have a lot of people who are frustrated for good reason on a lot of issues in America right now. And frankly, all over the world. The first thing is not to explode into a uh, maybe into a peaceful pro- protest. You, you can actually go to city hall and 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 have your point of view heard. And because the sort of layers between you and the decision are so light, you can see things getting done. Now, the bureaucracy is there and you got to be persistent, and I think that's important, right. but you can get stuff done. The other way is this notion of what I call or what is called, I didn't term this, is is citizen scientist citizen scientist so more than ever as a community member and it doesn't matter who you are what demographic you are you have the ability now to be a a game changer and a change agent and a problem solver uh, because you have the tools right what, what what technology has done for a lot of us not everybody yet but a lot of us is democratize tools and and, and uh, 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 solutions right so Before you could look at a problem in your community and you can be really frustrated and say, Oh, I have to wait for the city to fix that or to do it Mm -hmm. today. You can say, I wonder if I can fix it. I wonder if I can build an app uh, or a piece of hardware or a sensor uh, that could actually fix this problem. And you know what you can, not only can you do it, you can build a business around it. And what I'm seeing in the work I do today is uh, an entire urban tech slash gov tech, uh, marketplace. Uh, of 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 these startups and people who are passionate about making a difference, building businesses, they're paying their salaries, they're awesome. they're making making a profit, and they're doing something that really uh, makes a difference.
1: That's awesome,
0: you know the book is great. Uh, You've been able to share how urban environments are being transformed. You're talking about ways to change quality of life. You know, you've talked about, you know, ways to set up a smart city strategy. There's a lot of great stuff in there. I wanted to get some questions. You apparently have a lot of fans here. Um, So um, not this one. I know pants are not optional. Um, But anyways, uh, Tiago, Tiago's got a great question, right? He's like, did the book change anything for you? Right? New visions (laughs) to discuss the book, any new materials based on what would have changed in the pandemic? Anything that you adjust yes is the answer and, and
2: let me quickly address that because this is <laughs> it's so interesting um first of all by the way shelter in place is a great time to write you know what I mean if you're a writer shelter in place actually is a good thing so I was able to write a lot of this uh the remaining part of this book during the pandemic um uh, and uh, but I, I but I'd written a lot of it before the pandemic and, you know, you start, uh, as, as you know, as publishers, too, you, you you kind of you write the book and then the cycles of editing and reviewing are, are, are extensive. I don't know how Karen did it. We'll have to find out Karen's magic <laughs> secret there. Uh, but that usually lasts a few weeks. So uh, I would say the bulk of my material was finished, you know, in March when the pandemic started to happen. And, you know, it was it went to the technical reviewer and the various reviewers. And, and and then my editor said, Jonathan, can you write something on the pandemic? And this might have been April. And so I took a look at the book and there was some obvious sections where I, I did add additional content. Um, you know, I, I wanted to talk about supply chain in cities. That last mile is critical and smart yeah. cities can make that last mile better. Uh, talk a lot about deliveries and then transportation. Um and then, of course, you know, with so many people working from home, and that seems like it's going to be something that will stay for a lot of us, we have to have good broadband, we have to have good internet connections, right? So um, I added that to the book, uh, but Diego asks a great question. I have to do a revision of the book probably in a few months and write a lot more about this because the pandemic is happening in the places where
0: people live and that's cities you know related to that real quick before we run out of time Vijay has a question can you touch upon how does work from anywhere trend impact the concept of smart cities uh, in general existing setups i think that's important
2: yeah yeah well it's early that's i think miguel made this point excellently it's it's very early to have you know strong views and and recommendations on yeah. what's going to happen um as longer this lasts and it looks like it's a tough one right um, we we will have to adapt uh, definitely uh, we're we're going to see um, more of the touchless economy, uh, you guys touched on that earlier. Um, so a lot more of our environment will be uh, touchless or allow us to interact in a touchless way. Um, very creative things being done, for example, about how you buy a car today. You can, you can buy a car in a touchless way, it's just remarkable, right? Yeah, And um, I think cities will have to f- finally address their, uh, uh, their, inclu- their inclusivity issues regarding uh, the digital divide. Um, you know, if more people are going to be working from home and you have to access more things at home, you need a good internet connection. So, uh, unfortunately, there uh, while America is pretty connected, there are still a lot of communities and a lot of people who either have very slow internet access or who don't have access at all. That's right. that's remarkable in our country. So, I think that's
0: going to be accelerated as a consequence.
1: Absolutely.
0: No great Absolutely. questions. We are here with Jonathan Reichenthal author of smart cities for dummies you got to check it out get the book at r-e-i-c-h-e-n-t-a-l it's an amazing book you can get on amazon and of course check out his lynda.com courses they are awesome so hey thanks a lot for being on the show really appreciate
1: you
2: You're oh, Rick, thank you so much
0: my pleasure congrats to you guys you're doing amazing stuff
1: <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> thank you it's it's uh it, you know it's amazing ray that we spent fridays talking to people like miguel and jonathan and karen like it's hands down my favorite time of the week. It's uh, it's because you and I get to be students. We just sit back and listen to these incredibly smart people who are generous with their time. And, uh, and uh, yeah, what a privilege. Uh, so uh, speaking of privilege, uh, we're going to hit a milestone next week. It's episode 200 in four years. So, you know, we're trying to keep up with the number of projects Dr. Reipendala did at Palo Alto. We're still behind. We're <laughs> still behind. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So, uh we're going to have uh, Leah Belsky, Chief Enterprise Officer at Coursera, to so talk about reskilling, upskilling, and really using digital technologies to better yourself and improve your 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 learning. We have uh, one of the most influential technologists in the IT space, Diane Henchcliffe, Vice President, Principal Analyst, Consumer Research. Diane has new research he's going to share with us. He's again one of the biggest brains in the in the tech analyst world, uh, and um, and a surprise guest that will announce. Uh, maybe sometime in the beginning, middle of next week. So episode 200, it'll be interview 606, 607, and 608 for us, right? (laughs) Uh, Who's counting? Um, Yeah. No, No, this has been wonderful.
0: Hey, thanks, everybody. Uh, Keep up the faith. Uh, stay safe. uh, And more importantly, you know, relax, have fun, read that, read the work from home books. (laughs) So (laughs) definitely read Karen's book when it comes out. I think it's gonna be important. Uh, A lot of useful tips to help you keep your sanity, uh, especially what's going on with working from home. So thanks a lot, everyone. Have an awesome Friday.
1: See you, everyone.